Acts chapter 25, and this morning is going to be one of those mornings where, God willing, and, and if I can get through it, we're going to make it through a whole chapter, because in these last chapters of the book of Acts, things sort of pick up speed, they pick up pace. And, and the whole situation is that the Apostle Paul, this great missionary of the first century, this man who went all over the Roman Empire to tell people about who Jesus is and what he did for them, He was on trial before a series of judges in the whole Roman court system. And we're going to pick it up first just by reading the first two verses of Acts chapter 25. Look carefully now. It says, Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priests and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. There's a lot for us to understand just in those first couple of verses. First of all, it tells us about a transition in the Roman leadership. When we last left Acts chapter 24, and I know that was a few weeks ago, but if you can just lock into it. When we last left Acts chapter 24, a man named Felix was the governor over that Roman province. Well, Felix was somewhat of a corrupt man. And he kept Paul in custody for about two years, waiting for a bribe from Paul, even though he knew Paul was innocent of all that he had been accused of, hoping to get the bribe money. He just sort of left Paul on the hook, hoping to receive that bribe for two whole years. Well, I'm sure in some ways that was a needed rest and replenishment. Paul had spent himself in the previous 10 years or so serving God in a very active life on the missionary field. But but we wanted to get this case resolved. Now, in Acts chapter 25, a new governor comes to the province of Judea. And the new governor's name is Festus. And he was apparently a good man, an energetic man. You'll notice right here in verse 1, it says... After three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. In other words, he was so interested in administrating the province well that he didn't hang out at Caesarea very long, but he said immediately, I have to go up to the most important city in my province, which is Jerusalem. And so he went up there to check things out. And when he got there, verse 2 tells us that then the high priests and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. And I find this fascinating. Paul was on trial because he was accused of speaking blasphemies against the temple, against trying to destroy Judaism, about preaching heresies, so forth and so on. These were the things that the Apostle Paul was on trial for. And you would have thought that after two years, the religious leaders would have said, well, that's a long time ago. Let's bygones be bygones. Let's forget about it. I don't know about you, but does two years seem like a long time to you? It does to me. And after two years, don't you think that these religious leaders should have been able to say, well, the man's been punished enough, let's let him go. No. After two years, they are still as energetically as ever trying to put the prosecution to Paul. I think we have a little unforgiveness problem going on here, don't we? And might I just say in passing, I'm just going to say this in passing, but I suppose it's going to hit right on the target for somebody here in this room. There's some people, it's been long, more than two years ago that whatever somebody did against you has done to you, and you just need to let go of it. I'm not saying that they were right and you were wrong, or I'm not trying to dispute right or wrong. It's just time for you to let go of it. 
I think these religious leaders should have done that, but they did not. So they spoke to Festus against Paul, wanting to put him on trial. But actually, as verse 3 tells us, it was all a ruse. It was all a, a plot. Look at it, verse 3. That he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. You see, the religious leaders knew that Paul would be acquitted in any fair trial. Therefore, they didn't really want Paul to be put on trial. They wanted to ambush and murder him before that trial could ever take place. When they said, yes, Festus, let's try this fellow Paul again, they didn't really mean it. It was all a plot, a ruse, a trick in order to get Paul exposed so that they could ambush him and murder him. I just want you to think about something for a moment. These were religious men, religious leaders, religious men, religious leaders plotting with lies and deceptions to ambush and murder a man because they knew they couldn't convict him in a fair court. Allow me, please, to say this, that if your religion makes you a liar and a murderer, there's something wrong with your religion. I don't know. There's something wrong in the way that you're applying it. And if anybody would name the name of Jesus Christ and it would make them morally a liar and a murderer, you're not connected to Jesus Christ. So I tell you, if there's anything true about who Jesus is and what is Jesus is truth and he tells the truth and Jesus is for life. He's not for murder. And it just shows how dangerous religious religion can be when it's disconnected from the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this can happen sometimes among people who call themselves Christians. Isn't that correct? But it can also happen, oftentimes does, among people who do not name the name of Jesus. And so here we again just see the danger of religion that separates or that is separated from Jesus. Now, verse 4. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. That brings us to the middle of verse six. Now, Festus, verse four tells us, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea. I don't know if Festus had uh, knowledge of the intentions of the Jewish leaders or not. Maybe he knew it by intuition. Maybe he suspected it. Maybe it was just God moving through what we would from the outside might call luck. But it wasn't luck. God's hand was on it, right? In any regard, Festus said this. No, we're not going to try him in Jerusalem. If you want to have a reopening on this trial, fine. Come to Caesarea and let's settle it. Verse 5 let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. Festus was willing to put Paul on trial again to resolve the matter, yet he insisted that the trial would happen in Caesarea and not in Jerusalem. And this plot of the religious leaders was foiled again. Now, the middle of verse 6. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought and when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul 
which they could not prove. Well, he answered for himself. And this is quoting Paul now. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. Now, please go with me back to the middle of verse six, where it says this sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. Now, I find that verse just fascinating, not so much for what it says again, although I can picture the scene in my mind. Can you not picture that scene? There's Festus sitting on the judgment seat. That is somewhat of an elevated platform. I don't know if it was high elevated or just a little bit elevated, but the judgment seat, which in the ancient Greek language was known as the Bema seat, it was an elevated seat of judgment. And it was elevated to illustrate the fact that I am over you. I am sitting in judgment of you. I have the right, I have the power, the authority to to, to determine your case one way or another. As he sat upon that judgment seat, that Bema seat, it suggested something to me. The Bible says that we will stand before Jesus Christ on his judgment seat. Paul stood before Festus, right, on his judgment seat. We will stand before Jesus on his judgment seat. You see, it means that everything we do in this life matters. Friends, sometimes there's some confusion or at least misunderstanding among Christians because you'll hear it and you'll hear me speak it. You'll hear other faithful people who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ preach it. They'll tell you this. They'll say, you are not saved by your works. You are not rescued from sin and judgment by your moral performance. No, you are rescued because of your faith connection with who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That is your rescue, not your ability to rescue yourself. And we preach it, and I pray that we preach it boldly and we preach it strongly. You can't, so to speak, work your way to heaven. But sometimes there's a misunderstanding, maybe even a twisting of that. And I don't want it to be unclear in anybody's mind. That does not mean for a moment that your moral life doesn't matter to God. It does matter to him. And you and I and everybody who names the name of Jesus Christ are one day going to stand before Jesus and he is going to judge what kind of life we lived. Now, it's not going to be a judgment for heaven or hell. That's settled for those who have put their trust in Jesus at the cross. But he's going to look at the life that you and I have lived. And he's going to assess it. And we will be held to account for the life that we live. I think about two verses from the New Testament that are relevant to this. The first verse is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We're going to put it up on the screen for you, so look at it carefully. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I find it interesting there that Paul spoke that we will be judged according to the deeds that we have done with our body, what we've done with ourselves. Now, it's kind of interesting. When I talk about the deeds done in the body or perhaps sins that you would commit in the body, for some people they think, well, that's eating anything that's not organic or something like that. 
And if you're committed to a good organic diet and green living, God bless you. That's wonderful. But I don't think that that's really what Paul was getting at, right? I think what Paul was getting at was much more basic things. How about this? Basic sexual morality. The Bible says that we should not be sexually promiscuous. The Bible says that sex outside of marriage is sin. And it carries with it its own penalty. And there have been many lives affected, broken lives affected families by sin committed when sex has been practiced outside of marriage. We know this. This is outside of God's plan. And not only does our own conscience tell us that it's wrong, but the effect that we see in our own lives tells us that it's wrong. And one other thing, we will stand to account for it before the judgment seat of Christ. Also has to do with things that could be committed in the body, such as this. How about drunkenness, intoxication, you know, just getting high? My friends... I cannot stand before you as a preacher of the gospel and say that the Bible prohibits the consumption of alcohol because it does not. But the Bible does prohibit drunkenness. And there are some, more than a few, who take the liberty to enjoy some alcohol and they take that liberty too far. And it results in a lot of danger. It results in a lot of successive moral compromise. Be on guard against this. Be on guard against sexual promiscuity. Be on guard against drunkenness. Be on guard because what does it say here? It tells us very plainly that we will appear before him. I'll just read the verse one more time. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, here's a second verse from the New Testament that tells us about the judgment seat of Christ. Romans chapter 14, verse 10, where it says, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I really like these two mentions of the judgment seat of Christ in the New Testament. One of them speaks to us very pointedly about our morality, what we do in our bodies. The other one speaks to us about loving one another among the people of God. And when you've been too harsh, when you've been too judging, when you've been too critical, when you've been unfair in your judgment towards another brother or sister, Jesus is going to want to know about it at the judgment seat of Christ. Doesn't he say right there? Why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there is a place for legitimate discernment and judgment among believers. But there is also an arena in which we should say that is left up to Jesus at his judgment seat. So these things matter to God. And just as much as Paul stood before the judgment seat of Festus, so you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now I want you to notice something else here. In verse 7 of our Acts 25 text, it says that they laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Paul was falsely accused, as were many people throughout the Bible. You know, Joseph was falsely accused, was he not? Daniel was falsely accused, was he not? Yet, in another sense, every follower of Jesus is falsely accused. Do you know whom we are falsely accused by? By the devil himself. 
The book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 10, describes the devil as the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. Now, that's a cheerful thought, isn't it? That the devil is before the throne of God, accusing you, accusing me before the throne. And just as much as sometimes those accusations are true, are they not? Oftentimes those accusations are false. I'm so happy that we have a good defense attorney on our side. That Jesus Christ, I love the phrase used in the book of Hebrews, that he is our advocate. He's our attorney. He's our counselor. He stands up on our behalf. And he he gets rid of those accusations. And in Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation for our sin. In him, we are rescued. That gives me a lot of comfort in the face of false accusations. Okay, going on now, verse 9. We're still on this trial before Festus. Paul is there. His accusers are there. They've made their false accusations. And here's Festus going to make some kind of determination of the case. Verse 9. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, and I imagine Paul nervously looking around at this moment, Do I want to go to Jerusalem or not? Then Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you very well known. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, then no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Friends, this is one of the most dramatic moments in the life of the Apostle Paul. He's there on trial before Festus. He's heard the false accusations. He's trying to read the scene. And I don't know if Paul read it out of, out of a human wisdom and experience or what if it was supernatural wisdom or experience. But when Festus asked him the question in verse 9, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Paul knew what the right answer was. No way. Festus, if the facts of the case are against me, the facts of the case are just as true in Caesarea as they are in Jerusalem. And I sense, whether it's by experience or whether it's by spiritual intuition or maybe direct knowledge from God, that danger awaits me if I were to go to Jerusalem. And danger did await him, right? Do you remember the ambush? Do you remember the plot to murder him? Paul didn't want to walk into that. And so he said, no, I will not go to Jerusalem. Instead, I will go to Caesar. Verses 10 and 11, we read, So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. I appeal to Caesar. He saw through the ruse. He saw through the deception, the efforts to suck him out towards to Jerusalem. And he said, no, no, I'm going to go to Rome instead. You know, rightly and wisely, Paul wanted to avoid martyrdom if he could. He wasn't afraid to face the lions, but he wasn't going to stick his head in the lion's mouth, was he? And so Paul said that he would not go to Jerusalem, but instead go to Rome. And it made sense. I mean, Paul understood this, that the evidence was on his side. Paul understood that he could win in any fair trial. The whole issue for Paul was getting a fair trial. 
and he knew that he had a much better chance of getting a fair trial before Caesar than he did by going back to Jerusalem. So he said in verse 11, I appeal to Caesar. This was the right of every Roman citizen to have his case heard by Caesar himself once the uh, normal appeals and trials had reached no satisfactory conclusion. And sort of like appealing to the Supreme Court of the Roman Empire. And that's exactly what Paul did. Now verse 13. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. Okay, now we're introduced to two new people. We've had Festus, who's the governor of Judea, but now visiting him is a king from another area, King Agrippa and Bernice, they came to Caesarea. Herod Agrippa II ruled a client kingdom of the Roman Empire to the northeast of Festus's province. Now, Agrippa was known to be an expert in Jewish customs and laws and religious matters. He didn't really have jurisdiction over Paul in this case, Festus thought, well, look, here's a man who's an expert in these things. It would be good for him to hear the matter. But don't miss the name Agrippa. He's connected to the house of Herod. His great-grandfather tried to murder Jesus as a baby. His grandfather had John the Baptist beheaded. His father had murdered the first apostle, James. And now Paul stood before the next person, in this not very illustrious line of the Herods. And who was beside him? Bernice. Who was Bernice? Bernice was Agrippa's sister, with whom he was living with as a wife. Their incestuous relationship scandalized the Roman Empire. But anyway, they were going to hear his case. Verse 14, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. So Festus is new to his post, maybe a little bit unfamiliar with some of the facts. He's trying to get some wisdom, some insight. He's confused. He asks Festus for some advice. And so now beginning here in the middle of verse 14, we read, saying, now he's going to explain the case to to, uh, Agrippa. There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders informed me. When I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him, to them I answered, it's not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has his opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charges against him. So here, Festus is simply explaining the case to Agrippa. Well, they wanted me to rule on this, but look, we don't do this as Romans. In the Roman world, we have a fair trial. We have a very high sense of civil justice. We're not just going to railroad a guy because he has some enemies among the religious community of the Jews. So now, verse 17, he's going to explain some of the facts of Paul's case. He says this, starting at verse 17. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I had supposed. And had some questions about him against their own religion, about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. I'm fascinated by this section. Okay, get the situation down in your mind. Festus is explaining the facts of the case to Agrippa. So he explains in verse 18, They brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed. In other words, I was surprised. 
I thought they must have really had something good on this guy. They must have some real dirt on this guy. He must have done something really bad. But when I heard the facts of the case, I said, this is nothing. What's going on? Where's the real accusation? And then their accusations focused on the matters of their religion, mentioned in verse 18. But look at verse 19. Their real opposition focused on the fact that Paul preached, notice the line there in verse 19, a certain Jesus whom Paul had, uh, excuse me, who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. I find that line fascinating for a few reasons. First of all, notice how Festus, a king, a ruler, a, a governor, not a king, excuse me, he was a governor of a Roman province, a high man exalted as a ruler. What does he know about Jesus? Practically nothing. A certain Jesus who Paul says was alive and now he's dead. What's going on with this fellow? Those words, a certain Jesus, prove that Festus didn't know much about Jesus. Now, this is something good for us to remember. Please remember, friends, that the great and important people of Paul's day didn't know anything about Jesus. Hardly anything. Festus hardly knew that Jesus existed and they had to be told. Now, we learned something about that for our own day. Charles Spurgeon said it really well. Listen to this quote from Spurgeon. He said, brethren, this is why we must keep preaching Jesus Christ, because he is still so little known. The masses of this city are as ignorant of Jesus as Festus was. Wasn't that true? It is true, my friends. You somehow think that people know about Jesus. They know about who he is and what he came to do. And some people that you rub shoulders with in daily life do. But I think you have very little estimation of how many don't. How many people walk around and they're almost completely ignorant about who Jesus really is and what he came to do. My daughter was speaking to a co-worker. And the co-worker, she was telling the thing about the, our Easter service at the Sunken Gardens and inviting her there and just telling her about it. And her co-worker said something like this. I, I'm paraphrasing the quote in my own mind. I don't remember conversations all that well. But to the best of my ability, her, her co-worker said something like this. She said, oh, yeah, I remember that, that Christmas thing. That's when Jesus was born. But what's this whole Easter thing about? Now, look, your, your reaction to that shows that you're surprised, aren't you? My friends, don't be surprised. We walk around thinking people know about Jesus, know about who he is and what he came to do. You've got the best news on the planet. You can tell them about who Jesus really is and what he came to do. Now, I find it fascinating. This is what Festus did pick up about Jesus just from the words of Paul at the trial. Look at it, verse 19. A certain Jesus who had died whom Paul affirmed to be alive. The limited knowledge that Festus did have regarding Paul's preaching shows that in his preaching, Paul emphasized the death and resurrection of Jesus. This also tells us that by implication, it doesn't say it specifically, but by implication, Paul emphasized the cross. I would find it very difficult to believe that Festus knew that Paul preached that Jesus died without hearing about how he died. And this must have seemed very mysterious to Festus. What, you're talking about a great religious teacher among the Jews who was crucified? And then he rose from the dead and you're preaching him now and this is the whole source of the controversy? Well, now he's going to go on in verse 20, continue to explain his case to Agrippa. Here we go, verse 20. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. 
But when Paul appeared to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. And I bet the apostle Paul said, hot dog, I get to talk to another Gentile ruler. This is the third one now. He got to speak to Felix. He got to speak to Festus. And now he gets to speak to Agrippa. God is paving the way for Paul to speak and to preach the gospel before kings. Now, the meat of what Paul will say to Agrippa is going to come next week in our text in Acts chapter 26. No, really, you missed the wrong Sunday. If you're going to miss a Sunday, you should have missed this Sunday, not next Sunday. Because next Sunday, man, that's, oh, it, it's fantastic. You, I, but read ahead. You'll see how good it is. But don't miss how this chapter ends. Look at it, verse 23. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. Can you visualize that scene in verse 23? Can the movie run in your head? When it says, when they had come with great pomp, ladies and gentlemen, that's great pomp. <laughs> all the ceremony, all the pageantry, all the thing you remember from those B-movies you saw about the Roman Empire. There they are with the trumpets blaring and the soldiers marching and the courtiers speaking and the robes and the palm leaves and all the pageantry that the Roman Empire could bring forth. It's all right there. Now, you know what pomp and pageantry is meant to communicate, don't you? Pomp and pageantry is meant to communicate what's important. It's screaming out in that courtroom, hey, everybody, Agrippa and Bernice, they are important. Festus, oh, he's important. Everybody pay attention to this. That's what everything's meant to be communicating. Look at verse 23 again now. It says that at Festus's command, Paul was brought in, surrounded by all the important people of, the, uh, the, of Caesarea and the region. The commanders and the prominent people were there. It was held in an auditorium. Paul came into the auditorium, and they bring this one prisoner in. And I want you to just visually in your mind contrast the appearance of Agrippa, the appearance of Bernice, the appearance of Festus, the whole pomp of the scene to this one lonely prisoner that they bring in after they pointed out who's really important. You get the picture there in your mind? All right, let's read the next few verses. Verse 24. And Festus said, I wish I had a more dramatic voice to read this in, but you'll get the point. King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man, pointing towards Paul, correct? You see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and to not specify the charges against him. Okay, two important things in these last few verses of the chapter. Look at verse 25 where it says, 
when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death. Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he thought that was very important to include in the record. He wants everybody to know Paul did nothing deserving death, and that's exactly what Festus thought. Secondly, look at verse 26. It says, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. Festus wanted to use this trial that we're going to read about next week. He wanted to use this trial to prepare an official brief for Paul's upcoming trial before Caesar. You see, Festus couldn't send Paul to Caesar with a letter that said something like this. I really don't know what this man is accused of, and he's probably innocent of any wrongdoing, but I thought that you should hear him anyway. He can't send a letter like that. That's no way to become popular with Caesar. And so he has to research the case. Verse 27, it seems to me unreasonable to send the prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Well, that's where we have to leave it off for this week. We, we fade to black right here. I want you to look beyond the pomp, beyond the pageantry, to, beyond the show, to what was really going on there. There you have Festus, correct? There you have Agrippa and his wife or sister, whatever you want to call him, Bernice. There they are in all their majesty and all their glory and all their pageantry. There you have this man who Festus doesn't even name. He's simply this man brought in as a prisoner. He's probably dressed fairly shabbily, is he not? Perhaps even in chains. Matter of fact, he is in chains because we're going to find that out next week. He's in chains. Now, if you were to judge the relative importance of everybody there, what would you judge? Who are the important people? Well, Festus is important. Agrippa's important. Bernice is important. Because all the pomp and the pageantry tells you that that's what's important. Friends, you know who was really important there, right? You know that it was Paul and the Jesus whom Paul preached. Do you understand how crazy it is? That these many centuries later, you wouldn't even know Festus and Agrippa unless we were talking about them right now from Acts chapter 25, right? Now, if you would have told Agrippa and Festus on that day, nobody's going to remember you, but they're going to remember that prisoner and the man whom he preaches. They would have said, you're crazy. I'm Festus. I'm important. I'm Agrippa. I'm a king. No, but you're forgotten to history. And nobody cares about you, frankly. The only reason we talk about you at all because you're a footnote in the story of Paul and Jesus. You thought that Paul and Jesus, if they were anything, they would be footnotes in your story. No, you're merely a footnote in their stories. Because when this world is assigning value, when this world tells us who really matters and what really matters, most of the time it gets it wrong. Not all the time. But most of the time, friends, I just want you to say, I just want you to see, don't be deceived by the pomp. Don't be deceived by the pageantry. Let God determine in your life, in your mind, with what you do, what's really important. You'd rather be Paul on that day than Festus or Agrippa. Father, that's our prayer. We need you to do sort of a washing of our minds, sort of a clearing of our hearts so that we could understand what's really important, who's really important, and what you're doing in this world. 
Jesus. We resolve that we're not going to live our lives through the pomp and the pageantry. That we'll keep in perspective you helping us. What's really important? And even more vitally, Lord, who is really important? And that's Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. So we thank you, Lord. We ask that you receive our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.